0: Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the city series, with your host, Tim Williams. On the Grimshaw Cities Podcast today is the Renaissance woman, I think, Jess Scully, who is deputy mayor of the city of Sydney, but also author of a great new book called Glimpses of Utopia Real Ideas for a Fairer World. She's also a public art curator, famously involved with the great uh, vivid. Uh, festival, uh, which we have in Sydney every year and was involved actually in Green Square, which is one of our great developments. So, Jess Scully, you're very welcome. Uh, regular listeners may find that there's a bit of a quality problem with some of the recording. Uh, that's my fault. I can't possibly explain it to you technically, but uh, please persist as this is a fantastic conversation. Uh, well, I'm delighted that with me today is Jess Scully, Deputy Mayor of the City of Sydney, arts curator. Um, You've done loads of things. You've also uh, written a book called Glimpses of Utopia, uh, which is A, A, wonderful title, and B, has got lots of really good things in it. So we've come to all this. But I'm definitely going to start with, what does it mean to be Deputy Mayor of the City of Sydney? Um,
1: It it kind of means what you make it. Um, And it's one of those gigs that is uh, the spat filler of job, like it just fills, expands and expands to fill all the available space in your life. Uh, it, it means that, um, you know, I represent people. So people come to me and ask for help with things that they're working on or problems and challenges they've encountered. Um, and of course, there's a lot of work that is reactive in that way to issues as they arise, you know, the ones that we're going through right now. But there's also, there's also scope to do things and to push the limits of what you can do and to ask cheeky questions and to, to try and make projects happen. So there are a lot of things that I've initiated myself that I'm really excited about that I think have come about because I have a really nice looking email signature that says Deputy Lord Mayor.
0: No, it's true, I was going to comment on that. Uh, the, the, you have no other skills, obviously. No, yeah, but, it's a um, good
1: email signature.
0: <laughs> so. Um, what have you focused on? What's been your special interest since in, in your relatively new political life, by the way? I mean, well, five, five, years five years now, Tim.
1: Like, yeah, so it's yeah. it's um it certainly have more grey hairs than when I started. So, but what I've what's always motivated me, I suppose, my sort of uh, mission statement for my career has been to move Australia from the extraction to the knowledge and creative economy, and that's my sort of baseline that I measure what I get involved in against. And so I have continued to focus on the creative industries, on nightlife because Sydney, as you know, has needed um, a lot of work on the nightlife front because of the, the lockouts um, and then the lockdown. But then I also have become really passionate about um, things like procurement, which what? were never on my radar before, That's I have to intense, tell you.
0: Jessica, has never been uttered before <laughs> in media land. Passionate, passionate about, about procurement. procurement. I, about, I share this passion. Putting
1: about, this on my LinkedIn today. Uh, uh, no, it's so funny, you know, I come from this creative background and that of course was my first um, area of focus, still really passionate about it. But now the two things that motivate me the most are land use policy and procurement. And it's all about, you know, how do we spend money um, in a way that amplifies benefit here and for organisations that are transparent and accountable and do good, and how do we decide who decides how a piece of land is used, whose needs are prioritised, um, how value is created or generated or extracted from that piece of land as well. So, well, I'm
0: very interested in all that. We'll come to that, but I want to just tell people who will not know, because this will be listened to by people all over the world, right? <laughs> Which is, the people might not know that Sydney, city of 5 million, city of Sydney has 400,000? We what? have 250,000
1: 250, roughly residents.
0: Yeah. But it's the economic centre of the entire you kind know, of city region, really. And it's also well, of the state, a, actually. The
1: state. We're 25% of the New South Wales economy and yeah. New South Wales is the driver of the national economy. So just our local government area alone, which is 27 square kilometres, generates 7% oh, yeah. of Australia's GDP.
0: Which is equivalent to the Western Australian mining economy. You see, people. It is. It is. People don't always know they that. Don't fact.
1: always know. But that. it does mean
0: that, they, therefore, the people who run the city, the central core city, have a big responsibility for making sure that economic driver is still is still flourishing. So you know, you've got your day job, as it were, as a, as a council member looking after constituents, but you've also got this place to curate. Um, do, do you feel? Do you feel that?
1: I do feel that, and I, one of the things that that that. I guess, weighs on me or that that, that centres me is this idea that I can see how abstracted the global economy has become. And, you know, we are the heartland of the financialized and the service economy, the professional services economy here in the city of Sydney. Um, it, they're two of our top five, um, uh, you know, economic drivers. But there is a sort of tale of two cities going on all over the world where you have this economy that is just uh, thriving but we don't see that abstract financialised economy, but we often don't see the benefit on high streets or main streets where people who are running smaller businesses aren't seeing the benefit of that, where people who are working in increasingly precarious yeah. um, uh, you know, roles aren't seeing the benefit of that. So how can we knit that back together? And how do we uh, you know, take some of the benefits that, that that big end of town are experiencing and share them more fairly?
0: So I think what's great about that conversation, that was a necessary conversation to have before COVID, where even the more successful cities, even the ones like Sydney that we've all been celebrating, it's amazing kind of economic kind of momentum over the last few years. You start beginning to say, well, it's overheating, prices of housing are getting crazy, all that kind of stuff, right? So the conversation was always worth having as to what, to, what, what what's the next city look like that might be more inclusive, that might be uh, greener and you know, more equitable. We, we were on that agenda. Then Covid comes along, right? Let's do a little bit of the Covid experience. That you've been through as a city leader, right? But also the city itself. So a good piece of news, which internationally people might not always understand, is that Sydney itself, in health outcome terms, is like an outlier. It's done really extraordinary well, as the as the state has. And I always tell people, like I used to live in the London Borough of Hackney. London Borough of Hackney has see more people die. I think this is right than all of Australia. Yeah. So in in relative terms, we've done remarkably well, which I'm sure will play into going forward when we all come out of this, the kind of attraction that New South Wales City will have in some global sense, right? What's your experience over the last 18 months being as a city leader? How how do you see the experience?
1: I think, you know, we have been incredibly fortunate to be a big island, and that's probably paid it a really big factor in in our success, um, getting through COVID relatively unscathed from a health perspective. Um, I think there have been disproportionate impacts and as always the people who have um the least you know fat to trim are the ones who have borne the brunt of it and i think what it's done is it's daylighted the cracks in um what was already uh, a, a society that was being polarised yeah. in terms of haves and have nots. And, you know, Australia's always had this vision of itself as being a place without class, a place which, which is not true, yeah. and a, a place that is um, rel- generally uh, equal. But I think what we've seen is that some people are more equal than others uh, when it comes to how they've, how they've been impacted by the pandemic. You know, women were more likely to lose their jobs because women were more likely to work in um, a service economy, you know, retail, hospitality roles. Young people lost their jobs, I think, at twice the rate. Uh, people on, on casualized, in casualised um, workplace arrangements were impacted and, and didn't have access to the same level of government support. They got job uh, keep, seeker rather than job keeper, which will sound ridiculous to people overseas, yeah, but yeah. actually meant... Um, some people got more support from the government than others, or were considered more worthy than others, and people who were here um, as students on temporary visas, people were here as refugees yeah. and, and migrants, didn't get any help at all. And so we saw some people sort of be thrown to thrown to the elements. I as think go. that's a really quite an important
0: part of the story, you know, which is, and maybe the, the only positive that came out of it is we remember. That we haven't all been in together and actually there's a bunch of people who've been keeping us all going they 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 take risks that we never did as our knowledge workers working at home they deliver stuff to us i'm rather hoping there's been a bit of a reset around that but i I want i want to dig a bit deeper in in terms of the specific crisis that the city has been through you know um, mass transit without mass um you know streets without people shops without customers hospitality without people buying, buying a beer no tourists yeah this has been a you know we, health outcomes has been really good. Economically, it's been very tough going forward. What do you think going forward? You know, is it, people, some people like, I, I feel maybe throwing the baby up with a bath water saying oh CBD's all over. No. What what do you think about that? You know, in what's been the discussion in the city itself? In on in you know in your your activity day by day about what the future might hold and how, you see it. how do you see it? Absolutely,
1: just to add to that, you know, we're also um, really reliant on international education and yeah, tourism, yeah. so the kind of top five industries in the city of Sydney are professional service, financial services, yeah. uh, international education and tourism, and creative and right, um, exactly. and hospitality and nightlife. Yeah. So you know, all of those, well, uh, there's three of those that have, have really taken a big hit that we're talking about. I think the conversation going forward about cities is, you know, the the death of cities have been foretold many times. It just never, it never comes to pass because we need people. You know, we get so much more out of sitting in a room, facing each other, having this conversation, than doing it over Zoom. Um, And people are still drawn back to the gravity that the city has. Uh, but i'm going out and and having these um, sessions in co-working spaces at the moment because i kind of see co-working spaces as the uh, the people who were already doing this they were already working flexibly and remotely and working in more collaborative ways and and seeing the value of coming into the city uh, and probably working across different locations and so i've been meeting with them over the last two months and what they say to me is yes i'm only coming to the cbd three days a week. But I'm working the other two days closer to home, and that has a positive impact on local economies outside of the CBD, and perhaps could try uh, could, could play a role in in bringing more daytime activity and daytime spend to those other parts of the city. So what I want to see us take Mm -hmm. out of this is how do we build more distributed work practices but that also have a collaborative inner city um, work focus as well. So that's an opportunity that comes out of it. The other thing that I think comes out of it is redesigning the city itself to be a place for Um, Making and work and not just in so you're not just sitting inside your office to do work So how do we um, redesign city spaces so that you take your team outside to work in the open air where it's safer? But also where you actually enjoy the fact that we live in this beautiful climate and hopefully bring some trade to businesses See I love all
0: that because partly it plays to what I I think is your keynote optimism Which I will come back to because you've written a book about it, right? Glimpses of Utopia um, and I think, uh, but I also think it's rational, a not to give up on the great benefits of the city, which is essentially it's a of clever people creating value. But it needs to be reinvented. Mm. And there's some optimism I think I have around the churn mm. because when rents go down, it means other people can afford to come into the Absolutely. city, and we actually might see younger companies, startups, you know, uh, actual. And I also think I dare I dare to utter the word Melbourne to a Sydney. <laughs> so, but part of the reason why Melbourne, and this is understudied, has done well is not just the laneways, but it's cheaper. Yeah. Um, the rents are about half what they are in Sydney. So um, they really are. Everything
1: comes down to land value. Yeah. My husband says exactly. it takes me two drinks before I start talking about land value. But the land value thing we is We haven't critical. even had two drinks No, yet. no, because
0: the land value thing is critical because it means that we haven't had a diversity of companies. No. And it also plays into the nighttime economy problem, mm. which is we haven't had... We, uh, London would have these kind of family-run um ethnic restaurants right they could stay up till one or two o'clock in the morning and all this kind of stuff we've had expensive real estate in the city of city it means that only certain people can afford to occupy it yeah and they're the bigger end or they might be the drinking barns or whatever it is so it's narrowed the offer so actually we may find a more diverse users of the city coming in going forward i also like this stuff about on the street because it does strike me I, by the way you know you, you know that all, I've been here ten years and I mustn't use my relative outsider state this much longer right but essentially when I came here and thought it's a Mediterranean climate without a Mediterranean culture maybe we're about to bring those two together yeah
1: I think so and and more than that an Asian culture yeah, yeah. And, and that's and that's kind of what I see when I go to places like um, you know darling square for example you know there are parts of the city that are now the urban design is catching up um and and in step with the um the the cultural shift the demographic shift that's going on where we have a younger more diverse audience you know we have 51% 51% of the people in the city of Sydney were either born overseas or have at least one parent born overseas. Yeah. So we've got this expectation from all over the world and different ways of using the city, but the urban design of the city, and as you say, who has control over yeah. uh, how the city is designed, hasn't kept up with well, it Well,
0: on that subject, so I think broadly we agree with the wonderful slogan of the wonderful mayor of Barcelona, who says, fill the streets with life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it sounds to me as sort though of the city strategy going forward is to try and fill the streets with Absolutely. life, right? And
1: you know what i I just want to turn the buildings inside out, yeah. and I want all the creativity and the activity that I know is going on inside the buildings to be more visible. Um, and we're starting to get there. And and I think this crisis has opened the door to um, us reclaiming a lot of space. You know, previously, you know, I used to hear from business owners that the most valuable thing outside their business was a car space, and now they know the most valuable thing outside their business a Customers, yeah, p- spending money. Yeah. And and so we've overcome, for, to a large extent, that obstacle, the, the, the resistance that was coming from business yeah. owners who had not had the opportunity to see another way of working and now they've experienced it and now they can't get enough. Well,
0: it's interesting because it plays also to the... The impact that the light rail has already had, but we'll have more when I think COVID goes away, which is that it's restored life to that street, to George Street. So
1: for for people who don't know Sydney, you know George Street was our, you know, is our main street, but it was a traffic sewer. I mean, it was. I I used to work down the Rocks when I was um, working on Vivid for for you know I went down there for eight years. I would sit on these buses that didn't move because no. I was behind no. another bus. You didn't want to be on the street because the exhaust was there. It was just so. Um, anti-social as as an experience to be on that street and now this is a pedestrianized boulevard with light rail running up and down up and down it we've got trees you know we fought to get trees on there we fought for good urban design and to underground the cables and it's a beautiful place to be and it's a place you go now for buskers and entertainment and increasingly I think more um, businesses using the street as well
0: one of the things that I want to talk a little bit about governance because of course part of what governs the streets in cities, the city is the city-state relationship, mm-hmm. which has been familiar to many people internationally. Listening to this, you know, American cities are the same. They have to, I, was, I found out the other day that you know, there's certain things that the city of New York is still not allowed to do because oh, really? the governor, you know, oh. has, has control over it. And also, we forget these things, right? So, but I, my impression is that the state government city relationship has got better over the last few years, and there's a lot more professional alignment. You know, politicians can still row. You know but there's a kind of professional alignment between what is a good place and the word place has become important. Place has
1: come back. Yeah. and Look, I think it's really been the last three years and um, you know, I think they've, they've caught up. I mean, this is the, unfortunately when you're in the vanguard, you're out in front, and the Lord Mayor Clover Moore has always been out in front. You know, on climate action, on reclaiming space for people, on active transport, um, or, or, on funding culture, and we were kind of out there on our own for most of the time. Yeah. And now I think. There's a lot more people in government in, at a state level who can see the value in that. And, and they can see the value of having a, a people-focused CBD where you invest in nightlife and invest in culture. It, it, the results speak for themselves. Yeah.
0: The, uh, I think that's quite critical. I think going forward, uh, let's, let's do your optimism thing. Because uh-huh. right. you've written a book about it. Um, but also because I think we both think, I think that the odd effect of the COVID crisis is to bring even more professional alignment um, you know that actually some of the things that you might have thought were a bit left field three years ago and not like mainstream. Um, and there's this thing which I know is the cliche of our lives which is around the, the Overton window. Oh yes but you know and the Overton window opened in a moment of crisis to allow new, new thinking. Mm-hmm. So everybody's talking about the healthy city and walkability and green infrastructure like, like you wouldn't believe three or four years ago. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, the city series. With your host, Tim Williams. So, so uh, you, you, mm. your book uh, glimpses of utopia, which I love the title of, and subtitle is
1: "Real Ideas for a Fairer World." So, so the we, idea yeah. is is not to just protest against everything that's broken in the world, and don't worry, I do plenty of that in there too. But uh, because we need to know what the problems are so that we can fix them. But you know what? We have this much broader palette. Of policy options to draw from in painting the future we've got uh ideas that are in play all over the world you know i've got ideas in there from iceland and taiwan and from syria and from you know places you might not expect where we can see little glimpses little little prototypes that could be brought together that we could borrow from to build uh, a more sustainable more inclusive and fairer a fairer world that actually works better For everyone so to give you some examples you know i focused on politics economics finance city making um, and work Um, i haven't really looked at um about uh, technology really um, or 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 environmental work you know there's plenty of great um advances that are being made in in that realm and, and and there are plenty of people doing that work what i'm interested in is why can't we implement that stuff and the reason is the reasons are always political and financial, you know, so, or you know, they're, they're, the economy is used as an excuse for not making change. But I've found examples that can show us how actually re, uh, refocusing the economy on care, on creativity, on p- providing for people and the planet actually leads to better economic outcomes. And I found great examples of how we can use politics in a more constructive and proactive way to actually get the kinds of political outcomes that lead to that fairer world. So, you know, some examples are, you know, in Iceland, they have, since their pots and pans revolution after the GFC, they actually have implemented a a more participatory and deliberative online process of people getting involved in decision-making. Iceland's famous for being the only country in the world that actually held their uh, Viking uh, corporate Vikings to account as their their sort of um, very ambitious um, financiers were called after the GFC. They held this thing called the pots and pans revolution where they stood outside the parliament and banged their pots and pans until the parliament resigned. Then they used a public process um, where over eight weeks they selected random Icelanders who rewrote the constitution. And then since then, they've had a much more participatory way of making decisions about uh, about important issues, social issues, uh, as well as local governance issues, driven by a whole bunch of game developers and designers who've redesigned the process. Taiwan had a revolution as well, um, which was uh, happened a little bit later. It was called the Sunflower Revolution. And they've now got this fabulous digital minister, Audrey Tang, who has brought in a much more consultative, uh, technology-enabled, but face-to-face um, way of making decisions so that anyone who sees an issue in their local area gets together a petition of 5,000 people. Suddenly, that's on the agenda. The relevant government departments have to address it but not just in a letter back from the relevant minister, they actually have to sit down in a room with all the relevant stakeholders And not just the government but the other citizens and stakeholders have to work through the process and they had some really good successes most notably uh, you know how they navigated a path between uber and other ride-sharing services and taxi companies and and tried to find a a way through the middle that was fairer for everyone involved so you know there are fantastic examples and if we just took some of those approaches even to politics and political decision-making we would have a much more fruitful political process I love all
0: this for lots of reasons one is um, I, I have my own version of sort of populism approach, which is essentially that there's loads of common sense wisdom out there, yeah. right? Which we just either don't know about or we ignore at our cost. And that, it, and that a I believe that people can be incredibly creative from below. Number one, right? Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in a really creative kind of community. I know this. From. Secondly, we we always want to reinvent the wheel bureaucratically, and you know, so we normally ignore that. We, we ignore the great practice that is out there internationally and we just need to borrow it and adapt it and all this kind of stuff. So there's loads of things out there. But we don't need to start from first principles. That somebody's already done some of the exactly. hard work and we just think, oh that's good. We can use some of that. Yeah. I think the the last bit of it though, which is I know where you've been going, which is I'm gonna i I'm gonna caricature that this debate at the one on the one hand you've got lots of creative ideas and also a general commitment in your career, which I want to talk a bit about. Around the role of arts and culture in city making, right? On the other hand, it's led you to a, a more materialist place, which is to understand the conditions in which success can be achieved. You, you mentioned right at the start that you want to talk about land value. You know, it's not always that, that spectrum that gets you from creative and cultural industries to land value. It doesn't always come out of people's <laughs> minds. People. But I give you an example, I think what, what you mean. Uh, so, for example, when, when people say to me, why is it that um, there's like 40% affordable housing in, in the London mm-hmm. market and there's like virtually, you know, there's almost nothing in-, in See what and, you can do. Yeah, see what you can do. Voluntary planning agreements after they've bought mm. the land and all this kind of stuff. I say, well, it's a land deal thing. It's party planning regulations. And basically what happens is, you know in London, hasn't changed very much for the last two decades, that as a developer, you're gonna to have to do 30, 40% social affordable housing. So when you buy the land, you will pay less for the land because you know that there obligations. So it's called residual land value, right? Because we don't do that here. And developers know that it's not developer for it's a landowner issue.
1: It's the same developers the same. over there as here. But the difference is political will. Yeah. yeah. And, and the, it's not the
0: developers, it's political it's will. It's
1: political will. And, yeah. that and that's why I wanted to write this book, because I wanted to say these are not God given problems, mm. these are human choices made by the people we elect to represent us. We need to be really specific about how we'd like those choices to be made differently and different values to be centered. Because at the City of Sydney, we are 100% focused on getting affordable housing levies everywhere that we possibly can and allocating as much space to affordable housing as we can. Even so, there are ways that I'd prefer it to be done differently, even at the City of Sydney, than we do it. You know, I'm really focused on the idea of um, community land trusts and how do we take land out of the equation altogether? Yeah, um, And, you know, there are some commercial... You know, Stocklands are investigating right now. They have a land lease uh, approach where they've got some, something like 3,000 units that they're looking at developing on a land lease model. The idea being to take land out of the equation... It's absolutely
0: right. It's fundamental to the discussion. It's interesting. It gets you a better result, a more inclusive city as well. But I mean, you you have moved somewhat. I mean, the, you've tried a, a, a lot of new things. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, for example, you're involved in the okay. St George Housing Initiative in Redfern, yes, where the City of Sydney effectively transferred land at less than best value, yes, enabling all kinds of innovation and a great
1: result. We do there. that. We do that. We've done that with um, a whole bunch with City West, with St yeah. George, with Bridge Housing, with yeah. um, uh, with a range of them. And you know, we've generated. I think, I think there's eight. 100 units that have been delivered, but 2,000 that are coming, that are, that are imminent. And that's great, until you run out of land. Yeah. And so how do we create a model that is more sustainable so that the land is retained yeah. Yeah. and leveraged and used? Absolutely,
0: and I think that's right. And the the, see the, the UK approach is really a leasehold yeah. approach, which is, you know why would the public sector need to sell land? If you've got a ninety-nine your lease gets you almost the same value. It doesn't make any sense.
1: I, but it's, I 100% agree
0: so, yeah, with that. So, so I'm... Uh, it's interesting, I did a, this is a self-celebration moment. Uh, about 10 years ago, I did a thing, megalomaniacally called the Williams Report <laughs> for the Housing uh, uh, Federation in the UK, which is a rather public housing provider, a socialised provider. And um, we looked at what the basis of great placemaking was. And I came up with, essentially, with, if you look at the, um, the so the great uh, landowners, the, the London squares that we all think are marvellous, oh. they have not left the ownership of, those, of the Grosvenor family, wherever it is, for 300 years, right? All they've done is is lease the property. They never sold a single unit of land. And they have a patent book expectation of the quality that's supposed to be delivered. And they use the ground rents every year for the infrastructure. What's not to like? That model. Here's what's not to like. Here's what's
1: not to a like. Not to like. The Apart from the ownership, <laughs> and that's where we, you know, that's where I come in. That needs to be put into a trust that's managed by um, uh, democratically by a group of people selected at, that are representative of the community, like them, where you get some right. kind of deliberative. Um, decision-making about how to use those ground rents and what who to support who should be in there but it's not just you know what I'm elected and I think you know uh, all power to everyone who stands up to do it because it's not easy Um, but I want an even more representative form in that I would like to have citizens juries or assemblies or or groups of representative citizens who are paid for their time to actually make those decisions. It's
0: interesting there's a little there's a few things I want to unpack. As I really strongly support them. I mean, for example, uh, I'm at a second moment of self celebration is required. <laughs> That's what I'm working As an advisor to the housing ministers in the UK, uh-huh. I push community asset transfer as a big thing. Right? Yeah, right. And it's the same thing as community land trust. So instead of the, the the government trying to run the land all the time, try and give it to a community group, and yeah. so they've got a, a, a sustainable income over the next hundred years, whatever it is. But they do good work yes. on, on that. But I, I was interested because I got them. Not the model, I mean, the model existed. But I was inspired by this American group called Chicanos por la Causa, which is a, a kind of a Mexican support group in California or Arizona. And they started with one building that was given them by a council, and they're a fifty billion property empire that's doing great work for the community. So I'm really am interested in these in these models. Right? So I do completely. I think this is a really important part of the discussion. I'm trying to have on this.
1: I think oh, this, this is – so one of the challenges we have, you know, is, is that we have this sort of paucity of, of policy choices to choose from because we're just picking from the same, like, tired, bottom-of-the-bowl pick and mix of, of policy ideas here in Australia when we could be learning from Chicanos por la causa or yeah, whoever yeah. else around the world. And the, the other thing is we lack a forum, a public discourse – to even have a discussion about the different kinds of choices. So I don't want to give a spoiler to anyone who hasn't read the book because the book is, uh, you know, pub personal celebration moment, full of great ideas from all over the world. But the last chapter was the one where I kept thinking, this bit's going to be easy, I'll get to it at the end, which is the public sphere, the discourse, where do we have a discussion about what we value and, and make better choices from a better choice set? But I could never get there because we have a media that is um, very um, tightly held. Um, We have a very um, timid public broadcaster who is um, really kicked if if they step out of line. Uh, Elections are the time when we're supposed to get together and have a contest of ideas and, and reassert our values and priorities. And that doesn't happen. We basically get this sort of transactional politics where people say, I'll cut this much off your taxes. No, I'll cut this much off your taxes. So where do we have that conversation? I mean, sometimes we have them at writers' festivals, but it, they tend to be a small and self-selecting and rather homogenous group of people who get to have together to have those conversations, and then they don't have any translation to political action. So, so what we're missing is a public sphere, a set of civic institutions uh, that will allow more people to have that debate. So I think that's right.
0: I think we need innovation around that, and I think it's actually inspiring. It's coming from you that actually run... Or are involved in running a particular form of governance that you still think it needs innovation to involve more people I'm particularly interested i th- you know this is not a, mo- a third moment of self celebration this is just an interest the I've always been pushing for greater community and democratic involvement actually in in infrastructure in, in appraisal Absolutely. and procurement and some of the dumb projects we've had in this otherwise great city of ours have become because they really have not taken transparently and seriously the community discussion about why we should do X, Y, and Z. You know, I mean it's I am famously I was famously denounced this is the third moment of self celebration in the New South Wales Parliament for being a rogue element because I was opposed to West Connects, right? But partly well, yes, well I well, may be right. I may be right. You might
1: you might be right. At at it the core of it,
0: I felt was a failure to explain why if they had a, a rationale, why this thing and only this thing would do what they thought it was going yeah. to do, right? So that, for me, not fixating on Connects, but it's the type of problem where I believe that a demo, more democratic approach to decision making about why that, why now, why these resources, what's it going to do, and then and actually, what are we
1: not getting because we, we because choose that? that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the opportunity Because
0: it's not just upside. We damage, you know, we damage value as well as create value in these projects. Anyway, sorry.
1: So, you know, that's the thing i think we erode governments erode public confidence in governance and governments and the process and in planning in particular when you do this thing of of getting these poor bloody consultants and sending them out to get yelled at by community members who feel like their input will have no impact whatsoever and people just think well why bother they're just going to do what they want anyway they're just going to give it to their mates It's incredibly damaging for society to have this erosion of trust in democracy. I mean, you know, every year, Cambridge's Centre for the Future of Democracy does a study on people's sentiments towards democracy around the world. And this year, 58% of people in democracies around the world uh, are dissatisfied with the condition of democracy in their country, and this sort of Fake consultation and unconsultative or uh, a lack of transparency in decision making contributes to that lack of confidence. And it leads to, not to be too dramatic, the rise of demagogues. It re- yeah. leads to the rise of extremism. And that that is uh, uh, much more damaging. But it's
0: because it gen- people generally feel not listened to. Uh, well, they're not being listened uh, to. They're not being listened to. And I, I think this is a really important place to go. And we might kind of bring our conversation to a conclusion around this one very important idea and one very positive idea. Okay. Very important idea, I think, is around, do you agree that uh, in a way COVID and the management of it has been almost a, 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 a world's first global experiment in co-production between government and community to get, to get a solution. The best places have seen a co-production, right? We take responsibility. Yeah. By by you know by n- not going on the bus, or as it were, not leaving the house yeah. when they ask, all this kind of stuff. It wouldn't have been achieved
1: you know how i've thought of it tim i've thought of it as a global act of care it's actually the first time in my lifetime that um, society was put ahead of the economy and actually everybody's efforts uh, were focused on the idea of protecting the most vulnerable people in our community and imagine the outcomes if we applied that in normal life well that was our expectation of our governments that we would design our policy to protect the most vulnerable think, to yeah. climate change just to, to inequality you know to those other the other two great big challenges that we're facing but I
0: also think it's a moment of collaboration in a, in a more participatory sense oh, strangely people don't see it quite I think this is right I think this is around the governments could never have achieved the results they've achieved without the people. Absolutely. Right? People
1: had to actively... So I think own
0: that own co-production own. moment, we must not come back from. No. Right? So for me, the, the open window around co-production is wide at the moment. So we, we, we need people to say, no, no, no. When you come to announce that you're going to build something, we, you know, no, no, no. Come to talk to us first about what problem you think you're going to solve with this thing, right? So I think professionals in the built environment, Need to be more deeply involved in this participatory discussion. They'll get a better, re- your point, they'll get a better result, right? So I think that that may be an opportunity. How about this as a, as a place to go? I want to ask you, what do you think arising out of COVID? That's my example. What do you think arriving out of COVID makes you feel quite optimistic going forward? Given that you're an expert in optimism, <laughs> so I don't expect any pause. There, there was meant seamless. I was meant to come straight back seamless, with this. You know, one. My book says, and then like, when I do the next edition of this book, what, do you, what makes you optimistic?
1: I think the thing that makes me optimistic is is that active care that that people have been involved in, and I think the way that we've been focused on the fact that our decisions at a local level have an impact. You know, our decision to buy from a local retailer rather than order it from Amazon. You know, we have seen the tangible impact of that on our main streets and maybe that will change people's behaviour. Uh, and I want to scale that up. You know, of course, it's important that that happens in the community and that we as individuals are accountable for the way we spend. But I want our governments to be accountable for the way they spend. And I want us to be more transparent um, and to actually be uh, clear on the ownership structures and, and the uh, the way that the businesses we spend with whether they amplify that impact in the local economy whether they're accountable whether they're doing good you know at the city of sydney we spend 540 million dollars a year on procuring goods and services beyond our um, our wages spend and and currently 54 percent of that is spent in our local economy but what if more of that was spent in businesses that are democratically owned, you know, where workers are involved in making decisions, where, where people get paid more than just a minimum wage, but a living wage, where there's a commitment to um, employing marginalised communities, where there's um, more transparency around supply chains. You know, there's a way that that, that thing we learnt from this crisis about where our money going, having impact, can be scaled up to have a much, much greater impact. And, you know, I learned last week that the New South Wales government is the biggest customer in the country. You know, they spend more money than any other entity. Imagine if the New South Wales government had that approach too. What if our federal government had that approach? What if we, you know, and it's not about being parochial. It's not about just spending our money locally, but it's about spending our money with businesses that are accountable and that have um, some roots in this community and that have a responsibility to give back. And, and to to work more ethically. So I think that's what I'm interested in. That's what I see as a big opportunity coming out of this.
0: So my final question, um, apart from noting, and I, I'm sure people will tell us and email us and whatever, that your voice is very refreshing sure. in this discussion, and I think it provides uh, some alternative uh, answers that I think we, we don't necessarily get from the usual suspects, as it were. So I'm really delighted you managed to Thank come you. on. Uh, my Thank you. My last question would be, we, we, Filling the streets with life, right? In your head, ideally, it's two years from now. What, what, what would you like to see on the streets of Sydney?
1: Oof. I would like to see um, you know people put first, you know, so that we. We think about every street from the perspective of how much space is given over to people to to travel down this, to walk, to hang out, to spend time, uh, to enjoy the city. So reclaiming space for people. I, I understand that about between 30 to 40% of our public realm is street right now. Um, and the majority of that is given over to cars. And really, uh, if we refocus that uh, that percentage on actually human use, people walking, people cycling, then I think we'd have a a much more vibrant city. I'd like to see a city that uh, uses time in a different way, not just space, but uses time in a different way. And so that we think about programming space so that the the same piece of of land is used differently at 7am to 9am to 11am to 10pm. Uh, and that's something that i've seen done really effectively in asian countries like in in, um, bangkok for example in in thailand you know you see the same piece of land being used differently by different vendors by different people activating it over the course of a day i'd love to make it simpler so that we can do that more and i'd also love it to be a city where we see more creativity on the street and that does mean centering art and creative practice making it easier for music and performance to take place but you know structurally i want to see a city where we have to where we require that it is that fairness is built in and sometimes that's not immediately visible on the streets you know that doesn't look like a particular you know food cart out the front but we will see it in how people use the city and the ideas that they bring to the city and the, and the culture and the creativity they bring to the city because at the moment if we allow the market to dictate it we see that we get a monoculture and we see that we get um a a less perhaps imaginative use of our city so we can build that fairness in i think uh
0: the, i think optimism will ultimately triumph And if it does so it will be along the lines that you described jess scully thank you very much indeed thank you tim You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City series, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.